Well, good morning. So good to see you all. If you're here live, welcome. If you're at home, we're just glad you can tune in and we're glad to be together. If you haven't noticed, each week we are uh, mixing it up in regards to worship. But the principle and the heart of worship is through the words that we're singing to lead you, whether it's an upbeat song or a meditative song, to lead you to the holiness of God. And so I'm so thankful for our uh, music and arts department for the time they put in to prepare each week. We're trying to prepare to open up God's word every single week and pursue him and his truth. Last week it was hot. This week it's cold. Next week we're inside. Yes. So all of you who are here yesterday able to make it, thank you for helping us to prepare the campus this whole past week. Our staff and our team have been calling it Campus Ready Week. Next week is Campus Tweak Week, where we're just finalizing stuff. But to get things cleaned up and prepared for us to safely move inside. And so just to let you know, um, we're starting off, we're keeping a 9 o'clock service um, that's how we're going to begin to move back in. We'll see what the response is. If we fill up our service times, then we'll, if we fill up the rooms, then we'll do more service times and we'll let you know. But next week, 9 a.m., there will be, um, a little bit under a hundred spots available in our main auditorium, the worship center. And there are a hundred or a little under a hundred seats because of our volunteers in the family life center. And so starting today at noon, those registrations will go live, so I encourage you to jump on at noon, re, uh, reserve your seats, whether in the worship center or in the auditorium. We are moving in following all the requirements that the state has put on us. I'm going to say that again. We're moving inside, and we're going to follow all the requirements that the state is asking. We're trying to be safe, and we're just trying to follow what the county is asking us to do in accordance with scripture where god says to obey the authorities and i'll say this like i've said it in the past they're not infringing um, on the commands by these requirements so that's why we're going to follow them if the requirements move beyond the commands that god gives us then we're going to have to talk about how we're going to respond to that so we're asking you on uh, to come into the building wearing a mask We'll have hand sanitizer stations. We'll have uh, thermos, uh, thermometers to check temperature. Just trying to follow the requirements and be as safe as we can. And uh, just wanted to let you know that. So this week we'll be continuing to sanitize, block off seating, and get everything dialed in so that as we move inside, we um, are doing the best we can to honor God with our testimony, with our heart, our mind, and everything that we can do. So and we'll continue to live stream that's not going away, and so we know some aren't quite ready to come back or are compromised in some way, and so we are just so thankful for technology. We continue to live stream. Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. We're in a series entitled, The Blueprints of a Dangerous Church. What makes a church dangerous? Now, you, you read that title, and many will go, yeah, church is a very dangerous place to go. It's a very judgmental place to be. That's why I don't like going to church. That's not what we're talking about when we are talking about a dangerous church. What we're talking about is a church that denies itself 
as a priority and seeks the fullness of God's glory. A dangerous church is a church that doesn't compromise but lives for the glory of God, follows him and his word, his word being authoritative. Not just some ancient book, but his very words to his family, to the believers, to the church. And when we follow and live lives in honor of God and his glory, which is what we were created for, Westminster Catechism says the, man, the chief end of man is to glorify God forever. When a church unites in that manner, denies itself, and lives for God's glory, the gates of hell cannot prevail. That is a dangerous church. That's a church that we want to be. Will you stand with me as we read God's word, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is the letter to the church in Smyrna. Starting in verse 8, this is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those that say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by a second death. Will you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we read your words your letter to the church in Smyrna. As I read them, I, I've got questions. I want to understand. I want to see your sovereignty and your control. Lord, we, we need you. We need you to open our eyes and our ears to see what you're saying to us here today. What these words mean to us. What suffering and tribulation and poverty and persecution mean. And how they have a place in your plan and in your will. These are things, Lord, that we by ourselves cannot even fathom. And so we ask you to be here today. Knowing that even though uh, we ask you or not, you're here. But we need your spirit to open our eyes. To give us peace and understanding and lead us to your glory in all that we say and do and how we live. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I know the answer to this question. I know it well. I know it personally. Do you ever have fear of pain and suffering and hardship? 
Maybe you wonder if your struggle and your suffering will ever end. Maybe you're anxious about tragedies or trials that are just around the corner. Let me ask you a different kind of question. As we look at the suffering church in Smyrna, that's what this church is called. What would you do? Or how would you prepare if you were told, get ready, you're going to go through hell. Prepare yourself. How would you prepare yourself if you were told that something tragic was just around the corner. Listen, regardless of race, nationality, gender, societal status, your monetary status, your age, your religion, regardless of anything that could separate us as human beings, people share, all people share the common language of struggle or suffering or pain and trial. We may not be able to relate to each other's style of music or cultural music or other cultural's food or what they enjoy. We may not understand different cultures' sense of humor. But when it comes to pain and suffering, when it comes to anguish, we're all united. We've all experienced hardship, heartache, and grief. Listen, human suffering is a universal experience. It's not if, it's when. When will illness fail? When will age begin to have its effect? Maybe it's disability. For all of us, at some point, we experience loss and disappointment and grief and abuse. Maybe it's cultural in regards to racism and hate that you're suffering through. Or maybe it's loneliness. And all of these things raise one profound question. Just like suffering is a universal human experience, there's a universal question that all of us in some way, shape, or form ask or wrestle with in the midst of suffering. And the question is, why does God allow this? I mean, if he's a loving God, why would he allow horrible things to happen. I put this series together last year. Had no idea what this year was going to hold. No idea. And when I put it together, I was wrestling with the letter to the seventh church. Don't ask me because I don't even remember because now I'm wrestling with the letter to the church in Smyrna. And this is the letter I've been wrestling with almost all year. John writes this second letter to a church that is suffering. 
Smyrna. The, the word Smyrna comes from the word that means bitter. And bitter comes from the root of myrrh. Myrrh has got three significant aspects to it in the ancient world. It tasted bitter. Suffering is always bitter. It always leaves a bitter taste in your heart and your mind. It's something you have to wrestle with. It also can mess up your stomach. Have you ever noticed that? Myrrh is used and was used in the ancient world for indigestion or ulcers or colds or cough or asthma, arthritis, leprosy. It had a healing agent to it. Did you also know that myrrh is also listed as a key ingredient to anoint in the tabernacle, to anoint the high priest, eventually the kings? The primary purpose of anointing in the Old Testament with oil is to sanctify a person, to set them free, to make them holy. The church of Smyrna was struggling with suffering. This letter, this short letter, gives us a solid foundation to move through suffering. This letter gives us a theology of suffering. Our outline for the sermon this morning starts with an announcement which is so imperative in understanding God's will through suffering. Then John moves to an appeal after he he builds this foundation making an announcement of truth. He goes to an appeal, verses 9 and 10, and then closes, giving us some assurance as we move through suffering. So grab your Bibles and let's go through this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. He starts with an announcement to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. God is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. You see, John is creating and building a foundation that if we do not understand fully, we will struggle when tragedy strikes. We're going to struggle no matter what. There's no way around it. But without a foundation, we will be washed away by the trial. God is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's making a really clear and deep theological statement. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Like Jesus is a hundred percent man and one hundred percent God. And what he's saying as he builds this foundation is that Jesus, being the beginning and the end, was before your struggle and is after your struggle. And not only that, he's in the midst of your struggle. 
Jesus is the first and the last. The one who died and came to life. The gospel truth. Without a foundation of the gospel, we're rudderless. When the waves crash into our lives. God is the one who died and came back to life. Jesus, he conquered sin and death. He conquered the greatest struggle of all struggles as a foundation. This theological announcement is imperative for us to understand a biblical understanding of moving through suffering. Remembering the ultimate suffering and injustice is the gospel of Jesus Christ that redeems us. Martin Luther said this, our suffering is not worthy of the name of suffering. When we consider when I consider my tribulations, my temptations, I shame myself almost to death thinking they compare to the suffering of my blessed Savior. See, there's this foundation, this understanding to have a theological viewpoint of suffering. That if you don't have, changes everything. When the unexpected, the unwanted, and the unplanned, or the hard, or the difficult things enter your life, everyone always preaches a gospel to themselves. Always. It's easy for us, as I think about this, to understand gospel past, that Jesus came and died and redeemed me of my sin. That he did that. I can get that. I'll wrestle with it with different emotions, but that's tangible for me. And I can understand the blessing of the gospel past with the blessing of the gospel future, that God has done this to redeem me for all eternity. It's not just a ticket to heaven. That's, it's actually not that. It's a ticket to spend an eternity with God, that heaven is God, not heaven is, is not someplace void of God or some destination. It's, it's being with, it is with God himself. I can get those two, but, but the gospel in between, especially in the midst of suffering, that's different. Sometimes I really struggle to wrap my mind around that. It's muddy and it's unclear. How does the gospel give me a radical different lens in the midst of suffering i get past i get future because it's happened it's gonna happen but this is my reality right here and right now how do i deal with it here how does the gospel change how i move through a hardship i want to remind you of what i'm reminded god never promised that he would always protect us from hardship but he does promise that he will always be with us in the midst of a hardship. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
when you pass through the river, they will not sweep you away. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I am your Savior. See, in the midst of suffering, we always preach to ourselves a gospel. In the midst of suffering, there is always an influence. Your beliefs and your thoughts are your greatest influence. No one has more influence in your life than you do. Because no one talks to you more than you do. Ask yourself, in good times and in the struggle, what am I saying to myself? Because we bring our interpretation to life to our suffering. Human beings made in the image of God do not, this is going to be a little tricky, do not live based on the facts of their experience. That's not how we're naturally bent. We live based on our interpretation of the facts. I could tell you a lot of stories where my understanding of the facts, my interpretation of the facts were false. But I want you to think highly of me. So I'm not going to share those stories this time. Don't talk to Heidi. We naturally bring practical theology into our lives. Do you want to know why? Because we were created by God, for God, and to God, whether we believe in God or not. We bring natural uh, we naturally bring practical theology. Theology is the nature and character of God. We naturally bring this into our suffering. And so if we don't have an accurate theology, our suffering will reflect it in our souls. Nothing is more important in the moment of trouble than a true crisp, reliable theology of God's word and who God is. Good theology, listen, good theology doesn't just define who God is by scripture, not my opinion or my interpretation, but from scripture. Good theology doesn't just define who God is. Good theology redefines your true identity, which that's where most of the facts get messed up. What do I mean by this? You are a child of God. If you believe in Jesus and you've surrendered your life, you're no longer your own. You've been redefined in your identity. If your identity is in your friends, if your identity is in your experiences, if your identity is in your performance at work or your identity is in your calling or your ministry, if your identity is in your health, then God is only your safety net to keep you from losing all these things, which 
he created. If your identity is in the things that he created, when those things fail, and they will, because he's the only one that's eternal, and your identity is in those things, you're going to struggle. The struggle is there because of our nature and sin. But when our identity is in the wrong things, that changes everything. Suffering will destroy your identity, and then God will be to blame. This is bad theology. This is not what the Bible teaches. Good theology is hard theology. Good theology is hard to understand. Good theology, biblical theology, is hard to surrender to. Good theology, in our human nature, we will not like. As a matter of fact, we are bent away from it because of sin. But with good theology, suffering will deepen your faith. And it'll deepen your trust in God. And it will solidify your love for God. Bad theology will weaken it. Let me just real quickly give you three things I've wrestled with as I've wrestled with theology. Three effects of bad theology that I had to flesh out in my own life. I think they're universal that we all have to flesh them out. But I'm going to share them from my perspective. You see, when I went to seminary and and college, I began to wrestle with theology, and I realized that I had bad theology, and bad theology led me to set unrealistic expectations in life. The unreal expectations of life based on bad theology sounded like this. God loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. He loves me more than anything else. He exists for me. He died for me. He'll do anything for me. And if I'm not happy, then God's not happy. Which is partially true. But I'm not the center. Bad theology puts me at the center. You see, bad theology leads to what this is, selfism. Why do we get mad at God when we suffer? We all do. It's natural because sin nature is about selfishness and we all have to wrestle with this. I've struggled with this this past year in different areas that I never dreamed I would. I realize that I'm just a little too important to myself. It's a hard truth to realize. I could make a pretty strong argument that the four most important words in the Bible are the first four words in the beginning in the beginning god but bad theology has shown me that really i'd rewritten those words in the beginning andy was all there was suffering helps to flesh that out a little bit helps me to realize how idolatry how, how my love for myself which i'm going to wrestle with until i die and in completely glorified before God. The other thing is bad theology leads to hopeless suffering. 
and unbiblical doubt. Psalm 42:11. Why are you so downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For he will be praised. He is your savior and your God. makes an announcement, begins to build a solid foundation, for a theology of suffering, and then my notes are out of order, which causes suffering. Man, I'm going to blame this on Sharon, even though she had nothing to do with it. Don't ever allow your experiences to interpret who God is. Don't do that. Let who God is interpret your experiences. If it's the other way around, the God who you create disappoints you. You lose the truth of the God who is. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. Who conquered sin and death. Who is in control. This is the great spiritual warfare in the midst of suffering. After he builds this foundation, John makes an appeal he makes some statements and he appeals. He tries to exhort. If he exhorts without an understanding of who God is in the midst of suffering, these appeals are disheartening. Verse 9, I know your tribulation. God, Jesus, 100% man, 100% God, the beginning and the end, he knows. He knows everything. He knows your struggle. He knows your tribulation, your poverty. But you're rich. Without a theological foundation, that statement is just frustrating. And that's putting it nice. You see, there is richness in your understanding of God's sovereignty, of his control in the midst of your tribulation and your struggle. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. You see, the church in Smyrna was being persecuted by Jews and Romans. The Christians in Smyrna were receiving slander and they were suffering to the point of it made them poor. They were impoverished. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood. He goes on to say they are 
tools of the enemy. They're the worship center, the synagogue of Satan. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the enemy, with Satan, who wants to oppose God's people. But they're rich. They are living for eternal values that never change, no matter what suffering they go through. It's a quick theology check. It's a reminder. Suffering for Christ increases your riches in Christ. Do not fear is the heart of the appeal. Fabeo, not Fabio. This word, do not fear, means don't be scared away. Don't let your fear draw you away from the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was before your suffering, in your suffering, and after your suffering. Do not fear what you were about to suffer. Here's that question I asked at the beginning. What would you do if somebody said, hey, this is going to happen. It's coming. Get ready. How would you prepare? Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison that you may be tested Underline that. That you may be tested for 10 days. Don't be afraid. He is assuring them in this statement. He knows God's plans, or he knows the devil's plans. He knows what he's going to do. He's in control of the situation. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared away. Some believers are going to be imprisoned. Psalm 23. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Don't be afraid. You're getting ready to be tested. There's two ways to view a test. You know, it's kind of the Western way and then the Eastern way, so to speak. In the West... We take a test to see if we know the answers. If you pass the test, you've proven you know the answers. In the East, in the ancient world, you took a test, you tested yourself to lead you to the answers. I can't tell you how many tests I took in college where I missed one and I'm like, man, I didn't know the answer. But I never went and looked to find the answer. I just needed to know if I passed the test or not. going to be tested. This is an opportunity not to test if you have faith, 
the right faith. It'll do that. Or to test if you know sound theology. But it is a test that can lead you and guide you to God's glory. This test is a glory guide. You're going to be tested for 10 days. Their tribulation would not be long. To the Bible, 10 days signifies a brief time. We see this in Genesis 24 and Acts 25. The important thing to remember as he states this question, which is important for a sound theology of suffering, is that suffering is not going to last forever. We need to be faithful and stand true to our love for God in the midst of suffering. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown, the crown of life. This is eternal life. Church in Smyrna would have understood this because the region had arenas where they would compete, and the winners would receive a crown of life. Robert Murray McShane, who was a minister at the Church of Scotland in 1835 to 1843, he said this about receiving the crown of life. I read this quote. I loved it. The way to the crown is by the cross. Everyone that gets to the throne must put their foot upon the thorn. We must taste the fall if we are to taste the glory. When justified by faith, God brought Israel through the Red Sea. He led them into the wilderness. So when God saves a soul, he tests it. He never gives faith without testing it and strengthening it. And then he closes with giving some assurance. After he has built a theological foundation, making an announcement of truth about who God is, and then appealing them to not be afraid to endure because they'll get the crown of life, he gives some assurance. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by a second death. Underline, not be hurt by a second death. He talks about the crown of life, and then he puts it into practical understanding, a, a practical understanding, a second death, eternal life, the glory of heaven, verse, eternal separation from God. How then, with this foundation... God is with us. Don't be afraid. Endure. Promise of eternal life. How do we trust God through the pain? As we close, I want to give just a few quick points on this that my prayer will encourage you, will help you wherever you're at, in the midst of your struggle, to move through it 
by trusting God, looking to Jesus, not the waves, not the tribulation. First, suffering has a positive effect. It's hard to imagine, but if you look back at your suffering, most likely you will see in your own experience that God did something in and through you that wouldn't have happened without that suffering. Suffering has this purifying effect. I've noticed this in my own life as I've gone through hard things. I've mentioned a little bit of it this morning, that as I go through a hard time, it purifies my mind. It reveals things about me that God wants to change. It definitely rearranges my priorities. Suffering has this purifying effect, but not only that, suffering, or has this positive effect, suffering brings fellowship with Christ as the foundation. This is the heartbeat of a theology of suffering. One of the positive, or probably the most positive effect is that suffering brings me, it has this capacity to bring me into fellowship with Jesus that I wouldn't have without the hardship, without the struggle. It was in Philippians 3.10 that Paul writes, the fellowship we have with Christ's suffering, you and I can be drawn closer by faith when we go through the furnace of affliction. None of us has ever experienced, even in our worst affliction, what Jesus experiences, experienced. But all throughout scripture, we share in Christ's suffering when we go through suffering. Ed Clowney in his commentary on suffering writes, when we suffer as a Christian, there is a sense that we are suffering with Christ when our theology is centered on the gospel. There is this sense that we suffer with Christ. We partake in his suffering, not by contributing to his atonement, but by following his footsteps as we suffer for Christ. We are likened or linked to him. Our suffering witnesses to his suffering because he suffered for us. This brings a level of rejoicing when we realized he went through suffering for us in a supernatural way. This brings us into communion with Jesus. And last, a positive effect. Suffering gives us the ability to bring glory to God. This doesn't mean that God deliberately makes us suffer just so he can use our suffering to glorify his name. That's not true. When Jesus himself, though, faced his hour of suffering and death, he said, Father, glorify your name. And God was glorified in Jesus' suffering as Jesus redeemed all humanity that believes back to him. And then God honored him and raised him up from the dead in the most glorious act ever. You see, suffering purifies. It draws us closer to God. It glorifies God. 
think it's important that we also remember suffering is temporal. And glory and honor and love are forever. Paul taught this in the Bible. In Romans 8, he said, For suffering, the suffering of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us for all eternity. Polycarp, if you remember history class, was a great early church bishop in Smyrna, right after John. He was a no-holds-barred pastor. When he was approached by Marcion, historians tell us Marcion was a heretic. He's one of the first heretics in the church. Marcion went up to Polycarp and said, do you know who I am? Since Polycarp would not posture or pander, he looked him right back in the eyes and quickly responded, yes, I know you well. You're the firstborn of Satan. (laughs) It was Polycarp, soon after this, that was put in the arena in the city of Smyrna. And he was told to renounce Christ or suffer death. His exact words, 80 years I have served the Lord and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? They burned him at the stake, but he didn't die. So they stabbed him. And the believers at the church in Smyrna, tradition tells us, asked for his writings, asked for all of his personal belongings to be brought back to the church. Sun River, I want to encourage you this week. We'll be covering this in the live Devo at 8.30 every morning. Spend some time reading 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Allow God to prepare you for when? And if you're in the midst of that, continue to allow God to give you a peace that surpasses your understanding in the midst of your hurt and your pain, knowing that he's in control. Allow the suffering to draw you closer to him. And what that'll do to our church as we do this together is it'll draw us closer to each other. It'll give us the ability to love each other in a way that God commands us. We stand as we close. We're going to worship one more song and then we're going to have a prayer of benediction.